Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federal Society virtual event. My name is Jack Derwin, and I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. Today, we're excited to host a panel discussion titled Digital Discrimination Under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Joining us today is a stellar panel of communications law experts. In the interest of time, we'll keep intros brief, but you can view our speaker's full bios at fedsoc.org. Our moderator today, Joe Kane, is Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Previously, he was a Technology Policy Fellow at the R Street Institute and a Graduate Research Fellow at the Burkina Center. After a discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A as time allows. So please enter any questions into the Q&A function at the bottom right of your Zoom window. Finally, I'll note that as always, all expressions of opinion on today's program are those of the speakers joining us today. With that, Joe, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jack. And thanks to the Telecommunications and Electronic Media Practice Group for putting on this event. Uh, the FCC is currently in the process of implementing the digital discrimination provisions of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. In part, that act requires the FCC to adopt final rules to facilitate equal access to broadband internet access service, taking into account the issues of technical and economic feasibility presented by that objective, including preventing digital discrimination of access based on income level, race, ethnicity, color, religion, or national origin. Uh, the term equal access is defined in the statute, and it means the equal opportunity to subscribe to an offered service that provides comparable speeds, capacities, latency, and other quality of service metrics in a given area for comparable terms and conditions. So all of that is quite a mouthful and not necessarily crystal clear. And so as the FCC is in the process of determining how it should implement this portion of the IIJA, it's appropriate that we have this expert panel here to explain it to us. Uh, as Jack said, their fuller bios are on the website, uh, so I'll just give quick introductions here. We have Diana Eisner, who's the Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at U.S. Telecom, Jenna Leventoff, who is Senior Policy Counsel at Public Knowledge, Crystal Tully, who is Deputy Staff Director at the Senate Commerce Committee, and Sanford Williams, who is Special Advisor to FCC Chairwoman Rosenworcel and Deputy Managing Director at the FCC. And so to start it off, I just want to start with we have the statute that says the FCC has to adopt rules to facilitate equal access, and that includes preventing digital discrimination. And while equal access has definition that I, I listed there in the statute, I don't think digital discrimination actually has a spelled out definition. So there's obviously a lot of history on what discrimination law is and how it works. Uh, so I kind of wanted to start by just asking the panelists, what does the IIJA mean by digital discrimination? And how is that similar or different to other definitions of discrimination in other areas of law? And maybe for this, we can uh, start with Crystal, since Congress is the one who wrote this. Sure. Um, yeah, happy to. Um, so uh, I guess we came at this, um, we hear a lot of issues with broadband deployment all the time from different groups, um, especially in places like Mississippi, where there are a lot of um, areas that are economically hard to serve, rural areas, um, even urban areas sometimes. 
Um, we hear these issues all the time and we're, we were kind of looking to figure out if there actually is a problem, if, if it does exist, um, if there's an issue of digital discrimination, if certain communities are not being served for a certain purpose. Um, so we thought having the expert agency, um, the FCC, take a look at that, um, open it, you know, a robust NOI to ask these questions, to hear from the people that are in these communities and the companies that serve them, um, if, if there is a problem at all. So, um, I, you know, we, we worked on this language together with our Democratic counterparts and Senator Wicker supported the IAJA and, um, when, when it was up for a vote. So it's kind of now in the hands of the FCC and we're very curious and, and very happy that the NOI is open uh, to hear what the public has to say. In terms of other, um, uh, other definitions of digital discrimination or discrimination, discrimination generally. We were more just looking at factors that are generally considered under discrimination. I'm not an expert in um, other areas of discrimination, but we wanted to include, um, enumerate some of these uh, characteristics. So we have a full kind of a fulsome study at the FCC before um, a rulemaking happens. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Sanford, can we go to you? Is that, does that jive with how you guys are thinking about it? Uh, first, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time and great explanation, Crystal, about um, what Congress was thinking. Uh, since I'm working on an active proceeding, I can only say so much, uh, but I do say that what Crystal said is very helpful. Um, if you all in the middle of the answer, let us know because we're working on it. Uh, we definitely are trying to figure it out. It's um, interesting because the fact that there is digital discrimination or disparity, we know that exists. Um, how we address it, that was something we we're trying to, to work on. So uh, we've had tons of comments coming in to try to help us come up with the definition, and we're actively working on that. And I will leave it to some other panelists who can be more forthcoming about their perceptions of the definition to talk about it. Um, but I think Crystal laid the groundwork uh, exactly right in terms of how we're looking at it. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be more uh, forthcoming. Who wants to be forthcoming next? Diana, here. Want to go next? I'm happy to. Um, so. You know, thank you, Sanford and Crystal. Those remarks were very helpful. Um, and I firmly believe, as does U.S. Telecom, that digital discrimination requires intent. The statute directs the commission to, to adopt rules to prevent digital discrimination based on specified criteria. And this type of language, based on Supreme Court precedent, refers to mindset and doesn't encompass disparate impact liability. You know, by contrast, Title VII, the ADA, and the FHA, which all have disparate impact, refer to the consequence, not just the mindset. So, you know, we are hoping for an intent-based standard because we think that is consistent with congressional intent and also good policy. Uh, and Jenna, how does that sound to you? You know, I think that digital discrimination, it's worth noting, that digital discrimination means digital redlining. Um, that was changed in IIJA because I presume provider perception of the phrase redlining and the historical you know, context of that word. But ultimately what we're talking about here is digital redlining. So it's when providers are investing less in low-income communities or marginalized communities you know, the end. Um, and how we see that play out is when a wealthier area has a fiber broadband service and a lower income or, you know, marginalized community will have DSL and they both pay the same price for it. Um, and I think it's also worth noting that because of this expanded definition of digital discrimination, there's also an adoption component here. You know, I think 
this expanded language allows the commission to also look at the reasons why people don't have broadband, be it that they can't afford it, that they don't have a device, that they don't have digital literacy skills. So I think both of those things come into play. But first and foremost, I mean, what was what I believe this legislation started off as was legislation to prevent digital redlining. And Joe, if I could, um, so I think Jenna makes a very good point by saying that, you know, digital redlining was the term that we used before the IIJA for digital discrimination. And when you think of redlining as that term has historically been used, it referred to banks and you know mortgage lenders intentionally not being in certain neighborhoods because of the demographics and choosing not to give loans to certain people. So I think this notion of, of redlining is very consistent with an intent-based standard. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting uh, way of putting it. If we could go sort of from that, uh, you know, what the issue is and however we define it, uh, how prevalent is this to, in your, I know there are differing views on this in the record, but just uh, sort of laying out your all's views on how prevalent of an issue is this and how do we measure it? How do we know uh, where it's happening, if at all? Uh, Dana, we can start with you again on that and go around. Sure. So I think Crystal really made an excellent point when she said this provision of the IIJA was intended by Congress to have the FCC find out if it is happening. You know, Congress does not seem to believe that it's happening. I have not seen any evidence of it. I do not believe that digital discrimination is occurring. And I think that intentional discrimination should not be occurring. But, you know, I have not seen in the record at the FCC or elsewhere any evidence of it. Okay. Crystal, can we go to you on that? Is that sort of the sense going in is that this was mostly trying to figure it out and not sort of an idea that, oh, there's a problem here that we're looking to fix? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly differing views on that. But I um, I think, yes, we went in hearing there may be a problem. We uh, to kind of Diana's point, I, I, we haven't been given any um, you know, proof that this is happening, any um, any any very strong evidence in that direction. But the question needs to be asked and it absolutely needs to be addressed if there is a problem. And that's that's why we're um, completely supportive of the FCC's actions to open this in a way. OK. Yeah. And Jenna, do you have a different take on that? Yes and no. Um, I absolutely agree. I think that part of what this law does is it asks the FCC to collect the data so that we know if this is happening or not. Right now, the FCC isn't collecting data about the actual speeds customers get. It isn't collecting data yet really about price. A lot of this data that we need to really be able to do that comparative analysis to know if marginalized communities are being, are, you know, being discriminated against. Um, at the same time, I think we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that this is happening in cities across the country, that it's happening in Cleveland and Dallas and Detroit and Oakland. I mean, there are studies that show this is happening and there's anecdotal evidence showing that this is happening. I think the other thing that it's worth noting is it's going to be, and I think the FCC should have data about this and they should have a really robust complaint process. I do think it's worth noting that as a consumer, you're not going to know if you've been discriminated against because by definition, you need to know what's happening to someone else. And that's really challenging. So I think what we're really going to need the FCC to do here is to start collecting that data to see what's going on across the country and to really look into these complaints, you know, and not, you know, go above and beyond what that individual consumer is saying. 
Okay. Can I just ask like what kind of data or I guess what kind of data collection process you're thinking of in terms of like, is that what the NOI process is? Or you're thinking of something of after the NOI, we, uh, maybe the FCC says, hey, we need to start a process to figure this out. Absolutely. After the NOI, I think the NOI is the FCC, you know, and Sanford can correct me, is the FCC trying to get its bearings around an extremely complex issue. It's information from stakeholders like PK, like US Telecom. It's not collecting factual data about where broadband is and isn't, which some of that is happening through the Broadband Data Act, some of it's not. And, you know, what that quality of service is how much it costs and what the demographics are of the people in those communities. So I think it really needs a concrete data collection. Okay. And I'll jump in and add, uh, the NOI is definitely the start of the process. Uh, we had reply comments and comments come in. Um, comments were due in May, I think, reply comments in June. So we have a robust record. Uh, then we'll go forward. Um, to answer your overarching question, um, I will say, I think, I don't think anyone will argue that there is a lack of equity um, disparity between folks access to digital resources. And that's something we see anecdotally throughout the pandemic, whether you talk about the homework gap, telehealth or other issues. Um, and it's something that we concretely, I think, need data on to point to because the anecdotal stories are real and we can point to those, but having the data um, will help. Um, what that data looks like um, can't, you know, quite get into we'll use going forward but we definitely know that we need data to inform us because it's great to have anecdotal evidence but unless you have actual data to point to it's kind of hard to justify um or ground any any um rules going forward um so one thing we do need also not and uh, some of these folks here have been very helpful with um is as much information as possible every stakeholder that can help us out um, and give us information, help us move forward is very useful to us because we don't know it all. And the more information we have and we can uh, gather, the better off we'll be and the better our decision-making will be going forward. Yeah, can I just ask, what, do, what kind of confidence do you have in the FCC's ability to do that data collection? Because I know it's been sort of like for just deployment data in general, that's kind of been an ongoing issue. Uh, and this would be maybe even more detailed from what Jenna's suggesting. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, if you're asking me, um, I have 100% confidence to my colleagues. <laughs> uh, but as a practical matter, I mean, just to be totally honest and candid, um, we need to come in as a society, not just as a commission, um, have a better way of measuring where broadband is offered, who has access to it, who doesn't, and then going forward. So um, I think that we as a society generally, not just the FCC, need to do a better job of figuring out you know, where the holes are uh, and what's being offered and what's not being offered. So um, confidence, I have complete confidence that we'll do the best we can with the resources we have, the wonderful colleagues that I work with. Um, but we do need more information. Um, and hopefully going forward, we'll be able to glean that from all the sources we're trying to, to connect with to get that information. And I do think a critical part of that, to piggyback on what Jenna said, is the broadband data collection maps, which have been four years in the making since U.S. Telecom started the pilot four years ago in what is now the fabric. Because we all know 477 data is very limited. It's overrepresentative. It's underrepresentative. And the BDC data will really let us see where service is available and at what speeds and I think that will really be the critical first step in getting those maps right and getting them done is going to be really huge for this process. I just have to put a plug in, of course, totally agree. Broadband Data Act um, it will hopefully um, be helpful to, to, to eliminate some of these issues, um, putting the intent um, portion of it aside, um, things that we can fix uh, by just knowing where services is and isn't. 
Yeah, so the, sort of picking up on that, the knowing where service is and isn't is sort of one part of this. But I wonder, I think uh, Jenna mentioned this as well, is that there's also, you know, adoption issues here. And so, uh, you know, the way that we talk about digital discrimination often comes across as though we're going to find out if the ISPs are discriminating and then do something about it. But if it's, you know, adoption issues of lack of interest or something like that, that's not really anything that we can fix by going after ISPs themselves. So I wonder how you think about, you know, what what are the different factors at play here and uh, how you think about how that impacts what we do about uh, any sort of disparate impacts that we find. So I just wanted to just point out that, um, you know, community outreach and um, affordability programs are important. I believe there's $14 billion for affordability um, in IIJA. So I think that's a good start um, to kind of closing that gap with if, if it's an affordability for hardware or other issues that um, that's a good place to start. Well, and I think, Joe, to your point, looking at the digital discrimination question through what is really the commission's task, which is facilitating equal access. The commission is directed to facilitate equal access, which includes preventing digital discrimination. And facilitating equal access means ensuring that everyone has connectivity and the means to connect the methods and you know, not just the broadband is available. And I think we will see that a lot of this is adoption. Adoption because of, as you had said, lack of interest. Adoption issues because of price. Adoption issues because they just don't have a laptop available. So I think all of this money that's out there for digital equity over at NTIA and the 14.2 billion for ACP is all going to be very critical to that issue. And I think letting that money work and seeing what it can do is also going to be a very important piece of this. I have to add to that. I mean, I think it's amazing. We have more than $14 billion for a $30 a month broadband subsidy. We have a couple of billion dollars for digital equity, which states can use for devices or for digital literacy. It is not even remotely close to enough money to have universal broadband adoption. I think I heard from a provider yesterday that the ACP could be out of money by 2024. That's not even hitting the five years that we thought it would, right? So it's not too early to start thinking about how we're going to fund these subsidies again. They've proved really popular. More than 13 million people have signed up for the ACP already. And that's before we've even started some of the outreach programs that the FCC is working on. Um, but you know, we don't have even close to enough money for devices. I think what we see in a lot of low-income communities is that they share one computer amongst their entire household. And I can be on my soapbox forever that your average household probably has, each person has their own phone, their own computer, their own tablet a smart fridge, like whatever the case may be. And we're asking low income families to have to share one device, which, you know, obviously makes it impossible to have multiple people doing something online. And so I think we need to start subsidizing devices and we need to really put a focus on digital literacy. But I do want to say that there is an ISP component here because I think if broadband is too expensive for millions of consumers across the country, maybe we need to have more competition in the broadband marketplace. I think that that's contributing to the high prices of broadband. So I would love to see, you know, more focus on getting consumers a choice in who they can use as their broadband provider. So, you know, talking about pricing, I do, and I agree with a lot of what Jenna said. I think that standing up a program for more meaningful device subsidies and 
helping ensure that ACP becomes permanent are really important. And that's part of why we've pushed for USF reform so that there is a more robust contributions base and more money to spread around for these types of initiatives. But you know, we've seen in the past year, historic levels of inflation. I think it's at about what, 12% now in the past year. Broadband is one of the only goods and services where prices are falling counter to inflation. And you know, while competition is part of that, it's because of the ability to deliver fiber, which is less costly to maintain than copper, and also just you know, providers with good business models. So I think that while prices may seem high to some, prices are actually much lower than they were when you look at the value and when you look at year over year inflation. And again, you know, the price of eggs has, you know, gone up exponentially. The price of broadband has gone down. Yeah, but I can jump in here. I'd say um, we mentioned the $14.2 billion um, from Congress, which has helped immensely in terms of um, the ACP and making a dent and helping folks. Um, but um, Jenna brings up a good point, and um, Dan and Crystal alluded to it as well. I mean, we need to do more. Um, and this is not just an FCC thing. This is a society thing. We definitely have a role to play, obviously, in digital discrimination and the NOI and NPRM and whatever comes for, comes after that. Um, but I think that we have to realize that this is something that affects all of us. And I think that um, when we realize that, we can quick, more quickly work together. I think a lot of times issues are partisan, um, but this is an issue that affects everybody. Um, so we have made a great start, but hopefully we can use all the resources and um, great thoughts that folks have, like the folks here uh, uh, today, um, to try to get to the best resolution we can and not be content with saying, okay, we did something and, you know, we're good. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting discussion because it does seem like there's all these different broadband programs going on right now uh, and money flying this way and that and how we're going to fund each one of them, uh, you know, sort of disagreements back and forth there. But to sort of bring that back into the, the discussion of digital discrimination, does that sort of, how, how does that interplay work if we end up with, you know, we have a lot of programs that are trying to address the problems that maybe are attributed to digital discrimination. So is it going to be, if we collect all this data, then it's out of date immediately? Or like, how do, how do we suss out the larger trends that may or may not be there about discrimination? So I think that a lot of these programs really come into play with the legislation. So the legislation says that providers, you know, don't have to provide equal access so far as economically feasible. But what comes into play here in deciding if an area is economically feasible to serve is that the fact that people that once had no money to put towards broadband now have $30 a month to put towards broadband. The fact that providers now can get billions of dollars of subsidies to deploy broadband into areas that don't have it that are probably more expensive to serve. So I think a lot of these programs are really making it easier for us to see, you know, that's not true anymore. Maybe at one point this area wasn't economical to serve, but now it is. So you're basically saying this is going to sort of highlight if there's discrimination going on, it's sort of removing any excuses in many ways uh, there. And that I wonder if that sort of dovetails into, I know there's been some discussion in this proceeding about, you know, looking at retroactive con conduct versus future conduct. And uh, th does that sort of play in there if you're looking at, well, now that the money's there, we can sort of make a clear determination of what's going on. Or does anyone have thoughts about the retroactive versus proactive rules? So I think retroactivity is a very important piece of this. And the Supreme Court precedent is very clear that rules cannot be retroactive. They're promulgated by an agency without explicit congressional authorization, and there is none here. So 
I don't really know if there's any room for dispute about retroactivity, but to your point about how this data interplays with all of the money, I think it's really important to look at, and Jenna alluded to this, look at this provision through the entire lens of the Infrastructure Act. There's all this money that is going out for broadband. And you know that's not even looking at ARPA and Capital Projects Fund, which is another you know, 350 billion in ARPA that includes broadband, 10 billion just for broadband and capital projects. And this money is hopefully, if it's administered well, can go very far to closing the digital divide. And that really can't be ignored in looking at this issue. And I think it's more important to facilitate equal access through positive policy changes to ensure that providers can deploy that unreasonable rights of way fees for fiber are preempted and you know things of that nature so that providers can deploy, you can get the money out there and working. And then you know after the money has been deployed, let's figure out where there still are gaps and why. But first, really let this money do its job. Yeah. Anyone else have thoughts on that? Um, yeah, Kristen? I'd say I, I agree with that. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I, I think that we do. I mean, um, you know, we want to make sure we have accurate maps um, before <laughs> deploying billions of dollars. Um, <laughs> Uh, we want to make sure it's going to the right places. Absolutely. Um, but I, I do, I do agree. Um, at Congress's intent was not retroactive in my opinion. Um, and I think we should be looking forward. So I agree with, with Diana. Yeah. So to continue that look forward, let's say we go through this whole process, we get to the point where we're going to say, Hey, we've made our determinations about where discrimination is and isn't. And what then happens? Like, what is the policy that the FCC uh, can, like, what, what sort of rules can they make? Is this going to be like whack-a-mole enforcement actions or uh, more far-reaching uh, regulations? What are we talking about here? Or what would you envision asking you to predict the future of it? So I think a carrot approach is going to be much more effective than a stick. I think there are a lot of policy levers that the commission can use. You know, first of all, we would support a rule which prohibits intentional discrimination. No one should be discriminated against because of their race or their income in obtaining broadband. But I think looking at how to close up gaps is going to be much more important than the FCC trying to look at every aspect of a provider's network and determine if there is some difference between one community and another, which may have nothing to do with discrimination, but just there may be correlation. And you know, I think certain things the commission could do, such as determining if there's an area that is not economically feasible to deploy to, hasn't been deployed to even with all of this funding, and using the high cost mechanism and USF to offer a dominant provider in the area right of first refusal for a subsidy to deploy there. And I think subsidizing areas that are still not feasible to deploy to, even after all of this money has been exhausted, is going to be a really critical piece of it because that's how you make something economically feasible. And the statute has that very important caveat that economic and technological feasibility must be accounted for. I think that, you know, there's a mixture of carrot 
and, and stick that needs to happen here, right? So if a provider is taking millions or billions of dollars through one of the existing deployment programs and still not deploying evenly to all the areas in that service area, maybe we need to claw back those funds so that we can have another provider actually build out to where they say they're going to. So, you know, I think it's, it's a mixture. We certainly want to make it feasible to serve these communities, but I think we also need to recognize when bad behavior happens and not reward that with millions of dollars. And I agree providers should be held to their commitments to deploy. You know, for example, in RDOF, any provider who took money for a certain census block has to deploy to every location in the census block. Even if at auction, they thought there were 50 and there end up being 65. They have to deploy to all 65. So I agree that a provider who doesn't abide by their commitments should have that money clawed back. But you know, that to me is a different issue than discrimination. Point. Sanford, I, I won't I won't ask you to opine on what your uh, agency is going to do in the future. But thank you. I was going to smile and say, uh, yeah, thank you for the information and I'll take under advisement. <laughs> Very good. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit about the, the particular uh, factors listed in the statute of, you know, you, you may not discriminate on the basis of uh, these various things. I think a lot of them are, you know, pretty standard race, ethnicity, color, religion, national origin. I feel like the income level one seems a little odd. And I, just in terms of how that dovetails with return on investment, like, is that something that is Congress intending to say, you can't really consider that? Or uh, how does that, wh what does that mean in practice, discrimination on the basis of income level? Um, well, I'd say that that's, that was part of the negotiation um, to, uh, to, to be able to pass the statute. Um, but I mean, we, we, from where we, where we come from, we hear um, a lot from folks that are saying that if it's, if there's an area that happens to have um, low income households, that area is skipped over. Um, and I guess what the FCC um, should be looking at is why is that? Um, what, why are they not offering service to those areas? Is it, is it because um, they've surveyed the area and only two of, you know, 200 people are going to take it or they're skipping over it completely, which is more goes to the intent side of things. I think that there's a lot of great questions that are teed up in the NOI um, that kind of will help suss out um, what what's intended by that. In my opinion, I think that's the provision that really gives this legislation teeth. If we, you know, were to say providers don't discriminate against African-Americans, they would say, great, we're not. We're just discriminating against poor people. Um, and so for the first time, this is one of the first pieces of discrimination legislation to include income. And I think that's incredible because on a bipartisan basis, Congress did say, you need to look at this, like income is a proxy for race. Um, and so, you know, no excuses anymore. So, I would like to make clear that providers are not discriminating based on, you know, against poor people, against, you know, there is no evidence of that. I think that the important things to really think about, and this dovetails with technological and economic feasibility, is demand. Demand typically drives deployment. And oftentimes, I think correlation and causation are conflated. When you look, for example, at cities, and I think the FCC really did industry a favor with the MTE order that came out about a year ago, because there 
are a lot of issues for providers getting into certain buildings in cities in particular because the landlord has a deal with another provider or the landlord just doesn't want to provide access. Cities in general too, and I face as a DC resident, can be difficult in terms of deploying broadband. The permitting process can be difficult. The neighborhood association process can be difficult. And these are all things that factor into technological and economic feasibility. And there may be a you know certain demographic in cities. Cities may be comprised of one demographic over another more predominantly that or a certain income level that doesn't mean that there is discrimination. And I think all of these things need to be looked at together. And income is one part of that. That you know, income may be a factor for demand. It may not be. And I think that the ACP funding will certainly help with that. And I think to the extent that we can get some robust digital equity programs and digital literacy programs stood up at the FCC so that people know the benefits of internet and they have access to a laptop. They, those problems can be alleviated and there may there will be more demand perhaps from certain communities where there wasn't before. I wonder if I could ask a little bit more about that a ACP funding, the way that it uh, is being spent now, I think the the breakdown is that it's predominantly being used for wireless uh, services and devices. And I wonder how that plays into this idea of comparable speeds, capacities, latency uh, in the statute. Uh, are we going to end up in a situation where like we have to be judging different technologies against each other? And if someone's you know subscribing to satellite internet, that is discriminatory as compared to fiber or something along those lines. Uh, how does that play into this? So I think that's where technological feasibility really comes into focus. And there are really good technologies out there now that there weren't five years ago, other than just wireline broadband. And of course, fiber is the gold standard, but we're going to see some really terrific 5G fixed wireless deployments with all of this C-band that was won at auction in the past couple of years. And you know, for the person who lives with no neighbors for a mile at the top of a mountain in Montana, a 5G fixed wireless option is going to be the best technologically because getting the fiber up the mountain to the house isn't going to be easy. It's not going to make sense. And I, you know, I know that Commissioner Carr has spoken about this. He took a recent trip to Alaska and satellite is probably going to have some very good applications there given the terrain and given the remoteness of it. So I think that it all has to be looked at holistically and there is no one size fits all for broadband. Jenna, what are your thoughts on that with regard to how that plays into discrimination? Is, is it sort of a, is that opening the door for maybe providers to say, oh, we don't need to serve you because you have wireless or is that uh, not a concern? I think it's a really, really difficult question. Um, and I, you know, one that I'm trying to wrap my hand around still a little bit because I, I am wary of someone saying, oh, you know, you have a mobile phone, that's good enough, but you don't have a fixed wireless network available. So I can certainly see the benefits of comparing mobile to mobile and, and sort of fixed to fixed. But I think that's also a component of the problem when people have these different technologies, you know, like if a low income area only has DSL because a provider decided, you know, there's maybe not enough paying customers there to make it worth upgrading to fiber, but they are elsewhere. I, you know, I think that's, that's the problem. Um, so I think the FCC has a really fun job ahead of it 
trying to figure these things out. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, a reminder that you can use the Q&A function within Zoom to ask questions. And we just got a question in there. So I'm uh, going to ask Howard Meyer's question here. Uh, he says, the, the E-Rate program has been rife with fraud due to the complex application process, predatory vendors, and schools misappropriating the money. What then makes the government think that broadband for all will work? Uh, anyone have, a, have thoughts on that? I guess I can jump in. Um, I would uh, take issue with the, I guess, characterization that's right with fraud. Um, I think there are definitely issues. And I think with any huge program, it's going to be, there's going to be issues that occur. Um, I do know that working with things, at least in the ACP uh, at the moment, um, we try to follow GAO fraud framework and, and do the best we can to eliminate all possibilities of fraud. Um, and that we're going forward doing that. But I do think that um, overarchingly, that is a concern that any money that we get or, you know, taxpayer money we use uh, to further these efforts to make sure it all goes towards a purpose it's intended for and it's not being used fraudulently. So I can say at the FCC, we're doing all that we can with all the resources that we have um, to try to make sure with working with, again, the GAO fraud framework um, and other strictures um, to do what we can to make sure we um, minimize fraud. Um, and we're, we're doing the best we can is what I can say, but good question. Um, but I do think we're, just, we're doing our best to try to avoid it. I think, um, uh, you know, uh, our job in Congress, uh, our, uh, our obligation um, to oversee these programs and oversee the agencies that are administering them is really important. Um, I, th I think it's important to hold hearings and hear from the folks that are actually um, doing the groundwork and um, uh, folks that are benefiting from the programs to make sure that we are um, reducing and eliminating waste, fraud, abuse the best we can. All right. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, to sort of look ahead, maybe not as far in the future as before, but just in the more immediate term, like what, what happens next in this proceeding? I know that there's a, I think, a two-year deadline in the statute for when the, the rules have to be out. It seems like, uh, from what panelists have been saying, that maybe it's going to take a little bit longer than that to get all the data collected in a way that we can have actionable rules out of it. So I guess what sort of is the, the short-term timeline, and then how do we transition that into a long-term timeline to get uh, final rules. Um, well, I guess I can start. Um, we have a deadline of November 2023 to have rules out, um, and that's the that's the touchdown. That's the goal. That's the you know home run. That's the end. Uh, so that's what we're aiming to comply with. And uh, from there, um, between now and November 2023, we'll be working on it and doing our best. All right, Crystal, is there any other uh, sort of congressional action uh, brewing on this front or is it uh, mostly waiting on FCC to turn in its homework at this point? <laughs> yeah, I think that's an accurate way to put it. Um, you know, uh, just to go back to the maps for a second, we're waiting for the draft to come out, uh, the draft maps to come out. I believe in uh, mid-November was the last that we heard uh, might be uh, the timeline for that and going through the challenge process and making sure we have those accurate maps to kind of complement um, the, other, the other efforts to um, eliminate uh, digital discrimination. So yeah, we're just, we're sitting back watching uh, the FCC kind of uh, do its job and, you know, we're, we'll be doing some oversight along the way um, to make sure everything is implemented the most efficient way it can. 
And uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit premature to determine what kind of actions can be taken uh, if we do find some kind of discrimination. Um, but yeah, as the other panelists point out, we, we do have um, we do have levers we can pull uh, both the FCC and Congress if, if there is um, if, if there is evidence of discrimination. Something else I want to throw out here, um, which we haven't mentioned, I don't believe, is that uh, Congress also asked us in IJ to look at model codes, state and local rules. And I think sometimes in D.C. we can kind of forget, you know, that uh, there are localities and states that do things as well. Um, and we're good and we have a lot, of, a lot to say, but we're not the end all and be all. We don't know it all by, by a long stretch. So having states and localities and all of us work on this is another important part of this uh, equation that we shouldn't forget. Um, the FCC, you know, in Congress, you know, to be frank, we're, we're important, but we're not the only ones engaged in um, solving these issues. Yeah, I wonder, Diana, have you uh, had any interactions on that state and local front to how providers are, are dealing with these things on a, a more local level? Well, I think the local aspect of it really comes back to this direction to facilitate equal access by removing barriers to deployment and incentivizing deployment. And I think state and local regulations, which streamline permitting, which make it easier for a provider to deploy, which assist providers in working with cities and working with building owners. Because while I think the MTE rules are terrific, there's still going to be some local coordination that's needed to make sure that providers can get access to those buildings and I think that's really what we should be looking at. I also think you know, state money is going to be very important. Some states have their own USF funds. Others have allocated money towards deploying broadband. So I think everyone really needs to work together to facilitate equal access, which really is closing the digital divide. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I want to go back to something that Jenna said too, uh, which is another component of the IIJA, which is the complaint process, uh, which the FCC is also supposed to set up a process for individual complaints. Um, I guess any panelists have views on like, what, what is the role of that in this process? Is it uh, sort of a parallel system or they all work in tandem? Uh, what do you think? So I think that the complaint process should be stood up in a very targeted way. I think individuals should be able to submit complaints but I think that providers should not really be involved until the FCC determines that there is enough there there to go to the provider, especially because I think the way that this will be stood up is that members of the public could submit a complaint against a provider who hasn't deployed in their area and say, this provider isn't in my area because they're discriminating. And I think the volume of it has the potential to get overwhelming. So I think being very targeted with which complaints the commission decides to pursue and how is going to be very important because providers should really be focused on deploying broadband and not responding to know, every complaint that may come in. I think that the complaint process provides the FCC with a really good overview of what's happening. You know, if they are getting, turns out, multiple complaints from a small area, and those complaints might not say, I'm being discriminated against, they might just say, I don't have internet, or my internet is slow. That gives the FCC that 30,000 foot view that they need to really see what's happening. And I think it's really, really critical too that states and 
other nonprofit organizations contribute to this process as well, because some of the people most able to see those patterns are, you know, digital navigators trying to help people get online or community-based organizations that know their communities or states or localities. So I think it's important that a complaint process accept complaints, not just from consumers, but from these other sort of groups as well. And I think, you know, I hope that the FCC is going to have the resources it needs to investigate all of these complaints um, and take action on all of them. And I think it's important that the FCC is transparent about the actions that it's taking looking into complaints. I think, you know, the public wants to know how these complaints are being resolved and they want to know that the commission has taken a look at them. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and then a final section of the, the statute here is also the working with DOJ to prohibit uh, deployment discrimination. Uh, I guess maybe Sanford, do you, you have any update on that? I, I assume just ongoing discussions or? Um, ongoing discussions, okay. <laughs> following what, what we were told to do, uh, definitely doing that. And to jump back to the complaint um, issue, okay. um, we did ask about it at NOI, and we did receive a lot of helpful feedback, and we are, again, looking at um, what we can do going forward. Um, that's, that is an important component of it, so I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Um, and something folks kind of forget about sometimes. Um, but to put the DOJ question, yeah, we're, we're doing what we're asked to do. Okay. Do other panelists have thoughts on, on uh, you know, what comes out of that? Is that going to be like a, a prosecution machine for uh, ISPs who don't deploy places? Or how does that fit into the, the larger uh, goals of the statute? I think that it will be an important mechanism when there is intentional discrimination. You know, just as it was when there was redlining found with banks and mortgage lenders and, you know, back in what was it, the, the 80s, I think a lot of it was going on. So I think it'll be a very important mechanism that way. Um, you know, I don't think it should be a prosecution machine, but I think as, you know, an agency that is largely tasked with prosecution, that really should be their function that, you know, similar to what they do now in other areas of the law, that if you're finding very problematic behavior, then that's how it should be addressed. This just out of my own curiosity, is this common for FCC rules to uh, have sort of a, a in tandem DOJ component to say, if you break the rules, we're going to bring the feds down on you? Not that I really know of. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's common. I, I just would, would say that um, the way the IAJ was written, um, the times we're in, um, a lot of things, you know, that hadn't happened before have happened. So, uh, can't say it's common, but you know, we were tasked to do it and we follow our dictates from Congress and take it seriously. All right, sounds good. All right, uh, well, we're, we're reaching the end of my questions. Again, if there are any audience questions, we can take those, but uh, otherwise I think we can sort of ask, ask all the panelists anything else that you would like to say on, the, on this uh, topic, anything that maybe uh, would be more helpful uh, as the process is going on or uh, sort of something that you think people are missing in public discussions of this issue? I think from public knowledge's perspective, we think that it's extremely important that the FCC doesn't just look to intent. I think the fact of the matter is, is that if people aren't getting what they need and we have a national goal of closing, national goal of closing the digital divide, 
it doesn't matter what the intent is. I'm sympathetic to providers that, you know, don't want to be held liable for something they didn't intentionally do. But if we're looking out for the consumer, we need to take action against discrimination, no matter why it is there. Um, and whether that's through a carrot or through a stick or through a combination of both, I'm of the mind that intent doesn't matter. And in other areas of discrimination, it doesn't matter as well. I think if you look towards the history of discrimination, we see that when there's an intent standard, it's not enforced. It's extremely difficult to prove intent. You have to basically have a letter of someone saying, I wanted to discriminate. I hate this person because of their race or ethnicity. And, you know, that's, that is relatively uncommon. And yet we're still seeing all of these communities that are complaining about, you know, discrimination and not having what their neighbors have. So I, I think that's just from our perspective, really important to call attention to is the fact that it doesn't matter why this is happening. The fact of the matter is it's happening and we need to fix it. So I agree with Jenna that people should get what they need, especially when it comes to broadband. Broadband is a necessity. The past two and a half years have shown us that. U.S. Telecom put out a report recently showing that in the past, in 2021, providers deployed 86 billion of their own capital investing in broadband networks. And it's a historic level of investment. Providers are really working hard to deploy. And I think we have to be very careful in this conversation to not equate a lack of access with discrimination. There are a lot of reasons an area might not have broadband or they might have DSL and not fiber. Many, many providers are working on overbuilding their DSL networks with fiber, but that takes time. And they do one area, then they move on to the next. No, nothing can happen all at once and nothing can happen overnight. And you know, technology changes. What was state of the art for let's say CAF2 when that money was given out in 2015, that was a 10-1 standard DSL. And that was seen as the best at the time and the best that the providers should be deploying. Now that is considered woefully outdated. If you have 10-1, you're not deemed to have access to broadband. So I think we need to be very mindful that deployment takes time and lacking gigabit fiber does not mean that you're being discriminated against. And I think that the conversation needs to be more geared in that direction so that it can be productive and that we can all be rowing in the same direction because I think we all have the same goal, which is ubiquitous broadband and everyone being able to participate in the economy, in telehealth, in education. And those things are gonna happen by closing the digital divide. Yeah, I agree with that, Diana. I think it's really important to um, differentiate between what is discrimination and what is lack of service for other factors. Um, I think, you know, in Congress, especially for Senator Wicker, we're really looking, looking forward for the, to the maps being done so we can get this a lot of this money out the door um, and that we can make sure we're ensuring proper oversight. Um, and finally, close the digital divide. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say um, I love all the points. I mean, Jenna explicitly talked about the digital divide. Um, Diana mentioned the fact that broadband should be ubiquitous and it's a necessity. And I love what Crystal and the folks in Congress are doing um, in terms of having a bipartisan support for this issue. It's something that affects all of us. Um, and I think at the end of the day, what we want to do is make sure your zip code and where you live does not determine your digital destiny, that everyone has access uh, equitably uh, and internet. And, in an equity fashion um, to broadband so they can live their lives and be productive members of society. Yeah, and I think that's a, a good place to end it. I 
thank all the panelists for uh, helping us better understand this issue. And I'm sure this will this will not be the the last conversation on this issue. We'll definitely look with great interest on uh, further developments at the FCC and elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, back to you, Jack. Thanks so much, Joe, and to the rest of our panelists for joining us today. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to today's virtual event. You can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all the major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.